You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We're talking today about the inspiration of scriptures. And uh, this is where we must begin, as we're, we're in the series called God Wrote a Book, looking at how God has written and preserved His Word for us. And this is where we must begin, by talking about the doctrine of inspiration, because we have to ask, first of all, what kind of book is the Bible? What kind of book is it? Because if it, it, if it is not God's Word, then it really doesn't matter if it's been preserved accurately for us at all, does it? Ultimately, the only thing that should concern us and has it been preserved is if it's God's Word. If it's God's Word, then we ought to be concerned to find out how and if Scripture has been preserved accurately for us. But if it's just another collection of human writings and human musings by gifted sages and and pious, religious, spiritually-minded individuals throughout human history, if that's all it is, just a collection of maxims and proverbs and random statements and observations about life by people who are average and it turns out to be no more inspired than anything I've ever written or you've ever written, then it really doesn't matter if it's been preserved accurately for us. That really shouldn't concern us at all. Uh, then, then we could just look at it like a chicken soup for the Christian soul and take from it what we can and, and really discard the rest of it, uh, have chicken and throw out all the bones. But if it is God's Word, then, it, then that is what determines whether or not we should be concerned or uh, care whether or not it's been accurately preserved for us. So we're going to examine three concepts here in the coming weeks, um, probably taking us into early... Uh, March to do this. We're going to examine inspiration and then the doctrine of inerrancy, and with that, the doctrine of infallibility, because those two, though they are this, uh, close to, the, though they are connected, they are not the same. And then we're going to talk about the doctrine of preservation. Um, so today we're talking about the doctrine of inspiration proper. So in your notebook there, under the doctrine of inspiration proper, I have two definitions. I'm going to read them both to you. One is from uh, from God to Us by Norman Geisler, and the second from a book, um, Theology Text, Lectures in Systematic Theology by Henry uh, Clarence Thiessen. So the first definition, spirit-moved men wrote God-breathed words, which are divinely authoritative for Christian faith and practice. That is the doctrine of inspiration just succinctly stated. Spirit-moved men wrote God-breathed words, which are divinely authoritative for Christian faith and practice. And then look at the second definition. The Holy Spirit so guided and superintended the writers of the sacred text making use of their own unique personalities that they wrote all that he wanted them to write without excess or error. Now today we're just looking at the doctrine of inspiration and what it means. Next week, um, well the next lesson, it might not be next week, but the next lesson that we're going to be looking at is the doctrine of inspiration as Scripture teaches it. What does the Bible say about itself? Do we have reason to believe that Scripture is inspired because Scripture makes that claim for itself? That's our, that's the subject next week. Today, we're just looking at the doctrine sort of in a general way. What does, what, when we talk about divine inspiration or the inspiration of Scripture, what do we mean by that? Each of those two definitions has three essential elements, three essential elements to them. And each of these definitions contains these three essential elements because without these three elements, you have no doctrine of inspiration. There are three things that are necessary to have a divinely inspired book. And any understanding of the doctrine of divine inspiration has to contain all three of these elements. So the question then for us is, the book that we hold in our hands, which we call the Bible, is it God's Word or is it men's words? God's words? We have somebody who says God's words? Oh, somebody says both. Right, so it is God's Word 
and it is men's words. And so this is where our three elements come into play. So the first element is divine causality. Divine causality, C-A-U-S-A-L-I-T-Y, if you're taking notes, divine causality. And by that, we mean that God is the prime mover. Um, It is God who is the one who has moved to reveal himself in the pages of Scripture. That's what we mean by divine causality. Men do not seek after God. The original intended super overarching author of Scripture is not individual men. The doctrine of inspiration has the element of divine causality. God is the prime mover. He is the one who initiated a revelation of himself to men. He is the one who desired to reveal himself to men. Uh, If there is a God, and we believe that there is, if there is a God, then he is a communicating God because we are created in his image and we are communicating beings. We're communicative beings. And so if there's a God who exists and he is a communicating God, then he would have taken the initiative to be the prime mover to make sure that he has revealed himself to mankind or to those whom he has created. So it's not humans writing Scripture that into which God breathes his word. Um, we're going to look at this when we talk about different views of inspiration later on. But when we talk about divine causality, what we mean is that God himself is the one who initiates this process. He is the one who desired to reveal himself, and he worked in such a way so as to reveal exactly what it is and to write down through human authors exactly what it is that he wanted to write down. So we talk about inspiration. We're not talking about a collection of human writings into which God says, okay, I'm going to breathe power into these. Um, as if he stumbled upon Romans one time after Paul had written it and thought, you know, Romans... That's a really good book. I mean, we could make that scripture. I'll just, I'll just decide to use Romans in a real powerful way throughout human history. I might even use that to spark a reformation sometime in the, the 1500s or something like that. That's not what we mean by divine inspiration, that God looked through human history and found some writings that men had written and decided that those would be good documents to call his word. No, God knew that he wanted Romans written, and he worked and moved in such a way that Romans would be written, and Romans would be exactly what Paul wanted, or exactly what God wanted when Paul got done writing it. So God is the ultimate source behind this giving of revelation. The second element of the three is prophetic agency. So divine causality, meaning God is the prime mover. Prophetic agency, this refers to the men who were moved by God to write Scripture. So this is what Peter's talking about in 2 Peter chapter 1 when he says, men moved by the Holy Spirit uh, spoke from God. So these these are the prophetic agents or the human agents. Prophetic agency refers to the human men who were used to write down Scripture. So God did not use angels to record Scripture. Uh, God used human authors and human instruments, and very flawed ones too, by the way. Can you think of some really flawed men who were the agents of God's divine revelation? Paul? Of all the flawed men, you picked Paul. I mean, I can think of, I can think of some other more flawed men than Paul, but we'll, we'll go with Paul as a, to start off with. But let's go further down towards the bottom of the barrel. Can you give me some more examples of flawed men whom God used to write Scripture? Jonah was a flawed man, right? Peter? King David? How about Solomon? Man, Solomon. Of all the instruments to use for divine purposes in writing Scripture, Solomon. He gave us the Song of Solomon, beautiful picture of marital love and intimacy. He gave us Proverbs, the wisdom literature that's just filled with wisdom for life, right? Amazing. You can read a proverb and you think that is just a perfect description of life. And then there's what? Oh, yeah, how can you get away from Ecclesiastes, right? And it is Ecclesiastes. And interestingly, God used Solomon's uh, hardness of heart and the lowest of point of his life in order to give us Ecclesiastes. So flawed men. So these are not necessarily the most righteous and the most pious men that God could have chosen or the most flawless men, if they're by human, human standards of flawlessness. 
but these were some, in some cases, some of the most uh, marred vessels that God used as the instruments of his divine revelation. So he used men so that when we read Romans, we're reading Paul, and when we read Genesis, we're reading Moses. Right? These are the individual men whom God used. And not only that, but he used their situations, their vocabularies, their, their literary styles, their emotions, their environments, their personalities, even the individual circumstances and their own minds and their own backgrounds and the circumstances of their day in order to craft those divine writings. I mean, think of what went into the variety that we have in Scripture when we talk about the Word of God in Scripture. Think of what went into that. So when we read, when we read Paul in Galatians, for instance, Paul in Galatians doesn't sound anything like Paul in 1 Thessalonians. Paul in Galatians is, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you to switch gospels so quickly in midstream? Did, did I come to you in the power of the flesh or in the power of the Spirit? And if I came in the power of the Spirit, why are you now wanting to be perfected in the flesh? Like, didn't you understand it? How can you be so foolish? How can you be so naive? It's just, it's a, it's a, when Paul sat down to write the book of Galatians, you get the impression that he's, he's not concerned about the relationships that he has within the church. He has one thing in mind and one thing only, and that's a defense of the truth. So he sits down to write Galatians, and he is coming after the Judaizers and coming after these foolish Galatians who had been so quickly steered away into a different gospel. But then you read First Thessalonians, and it's my joy, my brethren, my crown of rejoicing. When you get to heaven, you are going to be the ones that we boast in. You are a boasting and our joy. We couldn't be prouder of you. You have no need for me to write to you anything concerning your love for one another. Because you've demonstrated your love for me and you've demonstrated your one f- love for one another. But I would just encourage you still more and more to continue to be the, the perfect and ideal church that you are. That's Paul in First Thessalonians. Do you know what is necessary to get the Galatian Paul and the First Thessalonians Paul? And by the way, it's not split personalities. It is, it is God supernaturally using all of the, all of the various elements in the Thessalonian life and the Thessalonian situation and those people in order to craft a circumstance so that when Paul is taken away from them or being with them for only three weeks, he writes to them a letter that bears his heart and his love for them. And then there was a whole nother situation going on in Galatia. And these are not written, these are not like Paul in his early life in Galatia and then Paul the old man. These Galatians, I chose those two for this reason. Paul and Galatians are not written very far apart. They're only a couple of years apart. But when Paul writes Galatians, he has a situation going on there that threatened the gospel and a bunch of a bunch of young believers who were quickly abandoning that and false teachers had come in so that God gives us Galatians and God gives us 1 Thessalonians and they are radically different. Totally different backgrounds. Uh, still Paul, still his language, still his passion, but totally different epistles, Galatians and 1 Thessalonians. Matthew and Luke. Consider the differences between Matthew and Luke. Do we have four identical gospels? No, we don't have four identical Gospels. That's a very good thing. Uh, Matthew is a very Jewish Gospel. You read through the Gospel of Matthew, you get it written by a Jewish man who grew up in Judaism, and uh, he is familiar with the Old Testament Scriptures, and he quotes them fluently, and he is writing to a Jewish audience. Everything about Matthew is very Jewish. You read the Gospel of Luke, totally different. Luke is a historian. He is a doctor. The attention and detail that Luke gives to describing the illnesses that Jesus healed is way different than any of the other Gospels. Luke spends more time and attention talking about the people and the diseases and the illnesses and ailments that Jesus healed and the ramifications of that than the other Gospel writers do. Why? Because Luke is a physician. So Luke is a, is a physician's doc, uh, a physician's gospel, and Luke is a historian. So the amount of historical detail and research that Luke did to write his gospel is different than Matthew. It doesn't mean Matthew is inaccurate. It just means that Luke gives more attention to some of the finer, finer points of details in his collection of, uh, this, uh, of instances from the life of Jesus and written to a Gentile audience. 
So Luke emphasizes in Jesus' interaction with Gentiles. That's very significant to Luke. Why? Because Luke is a Gentile. So God took a Gentile man and used him to write a Gentile gospel to a Gentile audience, a doctor, talking about the healings that Jesus did. And then God took a Jewish tax collector who had grown up in Judaism and used him to write a very Jewish gospel to a Jewish audience. Look at that variety, right? And this is, this is some of the stuff that we ought to appreciate when we're reading through Scripture and appreciating how it is that God has given it to us. Ephesians is very tightly reasoned. Uh, Romans is very easy to outline, relatively speaking. Uh, have you ever tried to outline First John? You know what outlining First John is like? It's First John is the themes of light and life and love. And if John would just talk about them in that order or any order would be nice, but John doesn't do that, right? John meanders through, and I don't use meandering in a bad way as if it's aimless or purposeless, but John sort of meanders through these different themes of light and life and love, and he, he ties them all together and he weaves them all together, sometimes going from one to the other in all of these different orders, talking about all these various things from all these different perspectives. And the, the book of First John almost defies being outlined in any kind of a logical way. And if you compare commentaries on 1 John, you'll find that the outlines vary as much as, as the personalities of the authors who write the commentaries. It's, it's very difficult to outline 1 John. John and Paul are totally different. With Romans, you have an, an outline, almost a lawyer's mind laying out the gospel, right? Guilty as charged, the first three chapters. Justified, Romans 4 and 5. What does that justification mean? It means that we're no longer slaves of sin, chapter 6. It means that though we're no longer slaves of sin in chapter 7, we still do the things that we don't want to do. But glory be to God, chapter 8, that he has delivered us from this body of flesh. So he gets through laying out all of that. It's just a logical logical progression of, of the doctrines of grace and the doctrines of salvation and the gospel all the way through the end of chapter 8. And then, then he raises this question, well, what about the Jews then, right? Romans 9, 10, and 11. How does that tie in with the sovereignty of God? And then you get to chapter 12, and after answering all those questions, okay, here are the practical implications of this gospel message. Chapter 12, the spiritual gifts, and 13, 14, 15, and then it closes, it wraps it all up with chapter 16. That is easy to outline. That's Paul's logical, legal mind, a man trained by the greatest legal mind of his day, Gamaliel. He's a man who models his teacher, and he thinks rationally, he thinks logically and linearly. John, too, all over the place, just through life, love, and light, and, and what different personality we have in those two scriptures, right? All of that is God-given. It's by the providence of God that we have such variety in scripture. It's by his design. Um, consider the difference between Philippians, the epistle of joy, and the one we already mentioned, that we should not speak, Ecclesiastes. Right? The, Paul, rejoice evermore, and again I say rejoice, and then Ecclesiastes is vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Those two books are in the same Bible. Those two books are given by the same divine author. Truly amazing, isn't it? Um, Paul's language is different than Peter and John. Sometimes the, the writings that we have in Scripture have run-on sentences. Um, different punctuation than we would have. Sometimes Paul begins a thought that he doesn't actually kind of finish. He sort of gets sidetracked, sometimes like I do, and get off on a bit of a tangent, and then you try and come back to it, and you don't quite come back to where you were at. Then you go on to something else. That's, there's a very human flavor to every writing of Scripture. Uh, like with Ecclesiastes, you get Solomon's heart. The, the emotions, the vocabulary, the style, the mind, the circumstances, the upbringing, the ethnicity, all of that ties in to all of the variety we have in Scripture. And God did all of this without doing violence to the will of the author, without interrupting them. 
So when we're reading through Scripture, we don't, we're not reading through Romans. And, and, and if I were studying through Romans and teaching it to you guys, I wouldn't say, okay, now look at the middle of verse 12. You can see where God interrupted what Paul was trying to say, and then God started doing his own thing over here. So then we have, this is the Word of God, and then Paul gets back in control over here. We don't have any kind of a multiple personality or split disorder uh, with the Apostle Paul when he's writing Scripture. It is, it is God using the human instruments, and what we get in Scripture is our books, each individual one, with a uniquely human flavor. So that when you read the writings of Paul, even the language that he uses, it's radically different than the words that John uses. It's radically different than the style of the Apostle Peter. Hebrews is, is different than any other book in the New Testament, and it perplexes people. There are similarities to things that Peter writes. There are similarities to things that John writes. There are similarities to things that Paul writes in the book of Hebrews. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but it bears the mark of divine inspiration. And Hebrews has its own flavor too, right? I mean, I haven't even mentioned that. Hebrews is is unique amongst all the New Testament books. So we have divine causality, that is, the God is the prime mover. The second element is human or prophetic agency. We have a prophetic agency, that is, the men who were uniquely moved to write these books. And this results in the third thing, which is written authority. Written authority, that is the product of inspiration, It is a divinely authoritative book. What we have in Scripture is a written-down authority in writing so that we can say that all disputes must bow the knee before Scripture. All discussions and all controversies must ultimately bend to the Word of God. All questions regarding spiritual things or divine truth can only be answered in Scripture. And it is the only writing that carries the authority of heaven, Scripture, because of this view of inspiration. We believe that God was the divine author, He wrote through human means. He did this without violating their will. He did it using their own unique circumstances, personalities, vocabulary, and gifts. And what we have then is a book which carries divine authority. So divine causality, prophetic agency, and then a written authority. So we would say that divine causality plus prophetic agency equals a written authority. That is the doctrine of inspiration. Now, look back up at those two two definitions that I gave you. Spirit moved men... That is what? That's prophetic agency. Wrote God-breathed words. That's divine causality, which are divinely authoritative for Christian faith and practice. That's written authority. Those are the three elements of, of the doctrine of inspiration. The second definition, the Holy Spirit so guided and superintended the writers of the sacred text. That is, the Holy Spirit is the divine causality. He superintended the writers of the sacred text. That is, the human or prophetic agency, making use of their own unique personalities and they wrote all that he wanted them to write without excess or error. That's written authority. So that what we have is a written authority. All right, so that is the definition, broadly speaking, of the doctrine of inspiration. Are there any questions before we move on? Yes. Yeah, that's a very good observation. Scripture contains, because it was written by human instruments, Scripture contains all of the emotions and experiences that men can have. Right, the, the joys of sexual intimacy in the Song of Solomon, the depression and discouragement of, of a life tried to be lived without the, under the sovereignty of God in the book of Ecclesiastes. You have the joy of Philippians. You have the, the passion of, of, um, of Galatians. You have in Second Corinthians Paul being abused and, and misinterpreted and him coming to the defense of his apostolic ministry. All of these various emotions and situations, there's something in Scripture uh, that touches on all of those. There's always something, no matter where we're at in life, we can relate to one of these issues. The question is just finding it in there and understanding what it is and how it is that we're to relate to it. Yeah, good observation. Yeah, Ken. 
Uh, I think we're, the, the question is, how do we get away from the circular logic that the Bible is true because the Bible says it is true? We're going to actually deal with that in the next lesson in some detail. So let me, let me hold off on that question until the next one. Um, that, that quote, yeah, the first one is from God to us, is Norman Geisler. Uh, Henry Thiessen from Systematic Theology. Henry Thiessen's Systematic Theology text was my textbook in, in first year, second year, third year Bible college. All right, any other questions? What do we mean when we talk about divine inspiration? I'm going I'm to give you some false views of inspiration here in a moment that we'll kind of contrast it with. So let me give some, let's talk about letter C, related concepts, some related concepts. And I don't have these listed here, but I'm going to give you three, three things that kind of are all similar and related. And I want to make some distinctions between these three things. Revelation, inspiration, and illumination. Revelation, inspiration, and illumination. These three things are all kind of tied together in some ways, and oftentimes Christians speak of inspiration as if they're, des- des- they're actually describing illumination when they talk about inspiration, and sometimes they talk about inspiration as if it's revelation. So I, I want to distinguish between these three so that we're kind of clear in what it is that we're talking about. Revelation, the word revelation, is not the last book in your Bible, though that's called revelation true, but, too, but, but revelation, what we're talking about is the content that is revealed. Our Bible contains divine revelation. Our Bible is divine revelation. I shouldn't say it contains divine revelation. Our Bible is divine revelation. There is content revealed in this. Content about the nature of God, the nature of man, the nature of reality, the afterlife, heaven, hell, rewards, sin, judgment to come, the nation of Israel, the history of humanity, creation, uh, the persons of the Trinity, etc. All of that is the content. When we talk about revelation, we're talking about the doctrine itself or the content that is revealed inside Scripture. The word illumination we use to, or sorry, inspiration, we use that to refer to the revealing of the truth. So revelation is that which is revealed. Inspiration is the word we use to describe the process by which God revealed that. Again, God being the one who reveals it through human agency resulting in a written revelation. That's inspiration. The content is what we're talking about in God giving revelation. So you'll talk about, you'll hear people talk about God gave me this revelation or God gave prophetic revelation or we believe that prophetic revelation is for today or God's still giving revelation today. They're talking about the content and should be talking about the content that is given. And we distinguish that from the process, inspiration, by which that content comes to us. The third concept is illumination. Illumination refers to understanding the truth that is revealed. Understanding the truth that is revealed. So revelation, the content, inspiration, the process of revealing it. Illumination is what happens when we understand the content that is revealed. So let me distinguish between those three one more way, and then I'll give you an illustration. Revelation is the fact of divine communication. Inspiration is the means of divine communication. And illumination is the gift of understanding the divine communication. Illumination is the understanding of divine communication. So let me let me show you why this is important. You will hear some people talk about, oh, I was reading my Bible this morning and I came across this passage and just sort of jumped off the page at me and and uh, I, I came to understand this passage in a, an entirely new way. God was giving me revelation. Is that a correct statement? God is not giving you revelation. What was God giving you? Illumination provided, provided that what was illuminated was in fact the meaning of the text and not something that you invented in your own mind. So if you're reading through Scripture and you say, um, I'll give you an illustration that I'm using in an, in an upcoming book. Uh, you're reading through the book of, of Joshua, for instance, and you come across the name Benjamin, and you say, well, God revealed to me what it was that I was supposed to name our next child. 
Benjamin. Well, why would you think that? Well, because I was reading through Joshua 18 and I came across the name Benjamin and it jumped off the page. God revealed to me something new. No, God revealed something in the book of Joshua. So he's, he's not revealing to you something new. Did he give you inspiration in that moment? No, inspiration refers to the way in which God gave us the book of Joshua and, preser- and kept it for us. God, the, the, the way in which God gave us the book of Joshua is having the name Benjamin jump off the page at me, illumination. <laughs> Why not just name him Joshua? <clears throat> it's not illumination either, right? Because what jumped off the page at me in that name has nothing to do with the meaning of that passage in its context or the intention of the writer. I'll give you an example of a time when God allowed me to... Under- now listen, the process of illumination hopefully happens when everybody studies Scripture. It happens as you're reading through and you're understanding what it is that you're reading and the, the amount that you grow in your understanding in, of illumination in Scripture. Your understanding of Scripture is growing in illumination. Hopefully that happens for every Christian. Um, sometimes it happens in big leaps or big bounds. Um, I'll give you an example of one time when it happened to me. I was reading through uh, John, uh, John chapter 12 where... Jesus quotes, or John quotes a passage from Isaiah when Isaiah saw God high and lifted up and the glory of his train filled the temple in Isaiah chapter 6. And Isaiah saw that. And John quotes that passage and says, this Isaiah said when he saw him. For years I read that and thought, yeah, this Isaiah said when he saw Yahweh, God. Okay, got it. Read through John. One day I was reading through John 12 and it dawned on me all of a sudden that the hymn was not a reference to the Father or the God whom Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6. John was saying this Isaiah wrote when he, Isaiah, saw Jesus. Jesus is the hymn. So what, what dawned on me in that moment? Yahweh, Jesus is the Yahweh that Isaiah saw whose glory filled the temple in Isaiah chapter 6. That connection with the deity of Christ. I believed in the deity of Christ, but that connection in that passage, I'd never seen that before. That is the meaning of John chapter 12, by the way. That is what he's saying. Now, in that moment, I had understanding or illumination and insight into a passage of Scripture, into the real meaning of that passage of Scripture. That's what we mean by illumination. It's not when something jumps off the page and and I invent some meaning that is never there for the original audience. It's me understanding the passage in its context, understanding what the author intended, and having some sort of insight into that. That's illumination. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. So when that happens, we don't say God gave us new revelation, nor do we say God gave us inspiration, because those are not accurate words to use to describe that. We would say God gave me illumination in the text. In studying it, I did the hard work, and the meaning came out of that. I saw the meaning of it. I understood the meaning of that. The Spirit of God shines the light on that. That is a that is a privilege that is only reserved for believers, because the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. A natural man, an unbelieving person who has not repented of their sins and trusted Christ for salvation, who does not have a renewed heart and a renewed mind and the Holy Spirit inside him, he cannot, he can understand certain things about Scripture, but he cannot have the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. Not until his heart has been changed and his mind has been changed and his nature has been changed can he honestly have illumination. Does that make sense? So those three distinct concepts, we have to keep them differently and make, different, make sure that we understand what we're talking about when we talk about those three things. Revelation, is the content, what is given, the information. Inspiration is the process by which God revealed that. And illumination is our subjective. It is subjective because it is us as the subject coming to an understanding of that which has been revealed by the by inspiration of the Holy Spirit.
Any questions on those three? Yes, Peter. How do we know that our subjective understanding of the text is accurate and it's what we should be knowing? That is the result of the spirit of the work of the Spirit of God and the hard work of doing the doing duty in the text, doing your duty in the text, in reading and understanding it. Um, our illumination, the illumination that we receive from the Holy Spirit as He draws us near to Himself and reveals to us deeper, more profound insights into Scripture, that will grow over time as we grow closer to the Lord and we read Scripture. Um, that's why I'm that's why I passionately try and persuade people every year. If you're not in the habit of reading through the Bible once a year, you should do it. You're not going to, are you going to understand everything you read in there? No. And don't think that I understand, I read through scripture with the same detail and attention to detail, um, of the whole Bible every year that I give to Hebrews. I can't do that. I spent 40 hours a week working on what I'm going to present to you in one verse. I can't do that for every verse in scripture, but I do read through the entire Bible once every year. Now, why do I do that? So that my understanding will grow and my ability to see the context will grow and, and understanding scripture and, and how it was given and what's in there. All of that is, is a necessary element of rightly understanding the word of truth. Paul says to Timothy, you need to be a, be diligent to present yourself approved, a workman that does not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That is something that requires diligence and work. And it does require effort. Yeah. Yeah, how do you answer the question? Well, that's your interpretation. Because in, illumination does come down to a certain understanding or interpretation of the text. Um, that's a more complex question to answer simply because you, if you have an interpretation of Scripture, you have to be able to defend that from the text. And so that's where you have to get into a discussion where somebody can say, well, that's just your interpretation. And my response to that, well, then what is your interpretation? How do you interpret it? Let's, let's go to the text. Let's open it up and take a look at it, and let's walk through it from top to bottom and see. And you justify your interpretation of the text. I'll try and justify my interpretation of the text, and let's see, how, let's see whose interpretation wins out at the end. Yes? Yeah. Does the practical application of a text fit under illumination? I think that, that would, the answer to that would be yes. Um, you, application is application is personal. Application is something that is very individual to the person when we're reading Scripture. Um, we always want to make sure that our application comes back to a right understanding of the text. Otherwise, we're naming our kids Benjamin because we ran across it in Joshua chapter 18. So we always need to make sure that our understanding of the passage determines our application of the passage. And so um, that's why interpretation and understanding the text is essential and our application of it will be very individual. I can preach one passage of Scripture, and I've had this happen where I've, I've got done with a sermon. Somebody's come up and said, you know, the way the Lord used this in my life is he showed me that he, he, he convicted me that X, Y, and Z. And they, man, I wasn't even going for that. Like, it wasn't even on my radar that that would be an application of the text. Yes. That's the sanctifying work of the Spirit of God. So, but when I, when I come up with an application for the text, I can't say the Lord revealed this to me. Because see, then I'm using the term revelation, new content. So I have to be careful, and, and you know me enough to know that I'm, I try to be very precise with my language so as not to create confusion amongst people. I cannot say um, I came across this passage and, and I was convicted that I needed to do X, Y, and Z in my application of this passage. This is what the Lord wants me to do to pursue holiness. Um, that might be an application that is obvious, and I feel inclined to that. I should pursue that application. But I can't say I was reading through Scripture and the Lord revealed to me or the Lord spoke to me and said that I am to do X, Y, and Z. Because now we're talking about revelation. We're not talking about illumination. I can be, I can be mistaken in my understanding of revelation. But God cannot be mistaken in what He says about revelation. So I have to be careful that I'm not claiming revelation 
for something that's really application or just an understanding of the text. Um, because God is not necessarily tell. I can't know that God is telling me that that's what the text means. Because my friend who believed that God told him to name his son Benjamin from Joshua chapter 18, he believed that that's what God was telling him. Well, that's new revelation. I, don't, I didn't think it was inspiration or illumination, nor did I think it was proper application. I didn't think it, I didn't think it hit the mark in any of that, but um, he claimed it as divine revelation, a way that God revealed something to him. That make sense? So in my application, I have to be careful that I'm not saying God told me or God revealed to me. I can say that the Spirit of God convicted me. That's biblical language. The Spirit of God revealed, that's not biblical language because now we're talking about different content rather than just the application. There can be only one meaning of a passage, um, but that one meaning of a passage might manifest itself in a hundred different applications, which is why I talk about, um, you, you'll notice that I'm, and sometimes I'm criticized for this, and I, I will take this criticism, you will notice that I'm very slow to list all of the ways that you can apply Scripture to your life from the pulpit. So when I'm teaching through a passage, I don't get to the end and say, okay, now here's what you need to do this week. All right, so Mark, here's what you need to do in you, with your wife and your family this week to apply this passage of Scripture. And Pat, here's what you need to do in your work and in your shop to apply this passage of Scripture. And Josh, here's what you need to do this week. I, I don't do that. I don't, I don't get specific like that. Why? Because I, I believe that if God's people understand the clear meaning of the passage, the application of that passage will be clear to each individual person. And one person over here might read that passage and hear what I'm saying. I understand that, and they know what that means for them. They don't need me to tell them that. Somebody on the other side is going to have a totally different application of that passage because that's the work of the Spirit of God to apply that. And once I start saying, here's how you need to apply this in your marriage, in your business, in your life, tomorrow morning, etc., what I've just laid upon you is law. I've just laid upon you a burden. And I said, here's what it looks like for you. Well, that might not be what it looks like for you. That might be what I think it looks like because I'm looking at you and thinking this is what you need to do, but that might not be what it looks like for you. And so... I'm mostly thinking about Josh, yes. <clears throat> so I'm, I'm very slow to do that from the pulpit because I think that when you, when you lay out the, the meaning of the passage and it is so clear to people, they see it in the text, they see it as God's authority, this is what God has said, then there's going to be 200 applications here on a Sunday morning. It's going to look different for everybody. Not without the working of the illumination, right. And so my prayer in teaching through Scripture is that each person here will begin to see God for what he is and see Christ for who he is and see what the truth of Scripture is and that in doing that, there are going to be people who are convicted to do different things as a result of that. But that's part of the illumination process and application. It's not revelation, right? Any other questions? All right, let's move on to... This is going to work out perfect because um, I'm going to get Duke... Uh, D, clarifications on inspiration, and then next week we'll do three views of inspiration because I had a whole bunch of bonus material. I'm just going to work into the second half of this, and, and this will be this will work out good. So clarification on inspiration. One thing that we need to remember it is, let's make sure that, yes, it is the Bible that is inspired and not the writings. The one time that Scripture speaks of theonousos, the Greek word for inspiration, theonousos, it is describing the graphe, the writings, and not the writers. And this is a careful distinction. We believe that Scripture is inspired, not the writers. Now, I understand that when we, sometimes we are really loose in our conversation. I've done it as well. I said, talk about the inspired writers. And we mean John was inspired, Paul was right when he was writing this. But the, it's not the writers, technically speaking, that are inspired. Because what does our doctrine of inspiration say? God used divine instruments, or God used human instruments as the divine cause to produce written revelation. 
It is the revelation that is breathed out. It is the graphe that is theonusos, that's given by inspiration. It's not the writers who were inspired. Does that make sense? Now, sometimes we can use the term inspiration to refer to the whole process of God using human authors to write written authority, and that's appropriate and that's fine. But we need to be careful that we don't think of that which is inspired as the writers themselves. Because if we're thinking that that which is inspired is the writers themselves, then what would that mean? What would the implication of that be? They wrote it, right. Or it would mean that everything that author wrote was inspired. Was everything that Paul wrote inspired? It wasn't. Now, how do I know that? Everything he wrote isn't in Scripture. Paul was a tent maker. Do you think he ever wrote out a receipt for a tent that he purchased? Or jostled off a quick grocery list to Timothy before heading down into the marketplace? You think he ever did that? Not everything Paul wrote is in Scripture. Not everything that Paul wrote is inspired. None of those authors. But when Paul sat down to write Romans, God's intention was to use Paul as the instrument to write that written authority. And so what we have in Romans is God breathed. God breathed it out through Paul. Same thing with Ecclesiastes. Same thing with First Peter. Same thing with the Gospel of John, etc. God spoke so that the writings themselves, the product, is what is inspired, not the writers themselves. So properly speaking, inspiration describes the product, which is the Bible. Um, number two, the doctrine of inspiration and the consequent authority does not automatically extend to every copy of the Bible, but only to the original manuscripts. So inspiration only extends to the original manuscripts. Yeah, Garrett? The original autographs, yes. What did I say? Yeah, autographs. I'm using, and right now I'm using uh, autographs and manuscripts synonymously, but I understand because manuscripts can refer to copies of the autographs. Yes, Jason. Um, is it possible, but not I was hoping nobody would ask that question. <laughs> is it? Yes. So this is a good question. Is it possible that Paul wrote something that was inspired but has not been preserved? We have to, this is a good question because we have to distinguish between um, God's intent in speaking, inspired and authoritative words and text, and God's intent in preserving for his church over the course of time uh, a corpus of writings that may include everything that is inspired, but it may not include everything that is inspired. So, for instance, the Apostle Paul has two letters to the Corinthians. We talked about this last week, which were written. They've not been preserved for us. The first letter to the Corinthians, which is before our first Corinthians, and a letter between what we regard as first and second Corinthians. There was a letter in there that Paul refers to as the severe letter. Those letters have not been preserved for us. Now, were they inspired? It, it, I don't, we don't know that. I don't know that. Was, did God intend to preserve that for us? That I know for sure. The answer to that is no. He did not intend to preserve that for us. Yeah, it does come into how they canonized what they did. I don't know that the early church ever wrestled over those lost letters of Paul to decide whether or not they were inspired. So that's why that's a good example because that never came up in the discussion as far as I know that those letters have been lost to history. But there are a bunch of Gospels that are not included in our New Testament, etc. And we're going to talk about why those were not included and, and who decided that and when, etc. later on. But to, to get to Jason's question, is it possible to have something that was inspired that is not preserved? I think theoretically it is possible, but I can't know that for certain because I can't know if what Paul wrote was given by inspiration of God. I can know that everything that he intended to preserve for us, he has. But, but again, only because of what 
only because it is, yeah, we have nothing preserved for us that is not given by divine inspiration. Right. There's nothing given by divine inspiration that's floating around out there that we know of that we just say, well, God wrote that, and it's divinely authoritative. It's the product of inspiration, but we reject it. Yeah, Peter. Is there anything, any recent discoveries of manuscripts that we didn't already have or know of? Um, no, nothing that we would consider inspired or authoritative. Because we go into what, what is it that constitutes what has been preserved and why has it been preserved, we're going to get into that question. What if we discovered today a document? What if we discovered Paul's 1 Corinthians? Right? And it was actually 1 Corinthians. What if we unearthed that in Corinth today in an archaeological discovery and it actually had Paul's sweat and tears on it? What if, what if we found that document? Would we regard it as scripture? Would we add it to our scriptures? All right, we'll answer that later on. And there's a reason why we'll, there's a reason why we're answering it later on. We're building brick on brick and we gotta, we gotta get to that conclusion. When we get to that conclusion, you'll see, okay, yeah, here's why we would not, or would add it. I'm gonna spoil it. <sighs> we add it. Okay. Uh, so the, the doctrine of inspiration reply, uh, uh, refers to the original autographs and not to the copies or the translations. Now, um, we're out of time here. I'll just quickly, I'll just quickly deal with something real quick. This pertains to the issue of, of translations and do we have a translation, a particular translation of the scriptures today that is authorized and inspired and given by divine inspiration? And I, I'm not going to pick on Josh's King James only background here, but there is a group of people within the King James only camp who would say that there is a, that the King James translation, the 1611 authorized God inspired translation is actually the inspired passage of scripture, the, the inspired translation. And so that anything that is not the 1611 King James, and by the way, King James-only advocates don't actually read the 1611 translation. They read a later translation. But anyway, they don't, that, that, that translation 1611 is actually the inspired. There is a group of people within the King James-only movement who would say that God re-inspired, did another act of inspiration in the 1611 translation to ensure that that version was exactly what God wanted. So they would say that the doctrine of inspiration applies to the original autographs, but then God re-inspired it again to make sure that we had it in the English as an actual inspired document. Sorry, what? Oh, okay. So then they would actually suggest that we would take the 1611 and that that would be authority to go back and to correct Greek and Hebrew manuscripts based on the English translation of the 1611. Now, that's some fringe, wacko stuff, but those people exist, okay? And that's what they believe. So when we talk about inspiration, we're not talking about the copies, which, yes, there are uh, manuscript errors in the, co- in the copies. We're not talking about those. We're not talking about any codex that came 100 years later. We're not talking about copies of the copies. When we talk about inspiration, we're talking about the autograph, the piece of paper that Paul wrote on. That is given by inspiration. Now, the question that we have to answer the course of this is, has what has been preserved for us, can we know for certain that it is what Paul wrote? And that's what we're looking at in the weeks ahead. Yeah, Pat. Yeah, and, and even even taking into account textual variants, which we'll look at later on, uh, we can still have that confidence that God has preserved for us exactly what he wrote for us through those original authors. And the Dead Sea Scrolls help demonstrate that. Yes, Brad. Uh, are the current translations of the Bible considered part of the illumination process? No. I wouldn't be included in what we talk about by illumination. Because that's what we're talking about with translation is that when we take a textual, 
uh, textual manuscripts or the textual, the, the original Greek and Hebrew, and we translate that into English, is that process accurate? Are we accurately rendering from one language to another God's intended meaning? Now, the people who do that translation, they are required, they have to understand and know the context because there are times when translating a word or a phrase requires that you have some understanding of what the author is going through. So those people who do the translation, they have to do the hard work of, of figuring out what this passage means in its original context because it's not like you just take one word and you translate it into the next word and you take the next word and translate it and just do this all the way through Scripture. That's not how translations work. Sometimes it's a thought-for-thought thought rendering of it, sometimes word-for-word. Word. Sometimes you're trying to take something from the original and, and translate it into an English equivalent that would capture the meaning and communicate the meaning, and, and that's sometimes difficult. And we'll look at examples of that later on. No, it's not part of the inspiration process. No, no it's, it's not in anything of what we're talking about here uh, in terms of, of translation. All right, the kids are done back here. So one last thing, and then we'll be done. Uh, inspiration, number three, is inexplicable. There is a mystery here. In, in what way did God do this? Did the, what did the authors feel? Did they feel like they were under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Did they know that they were under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? The answer to that is sometimes yes, sometimes no. Um, what did it look like in the process of it? Those are, there's mysteries here that we do not understand. Scripture tells us that God breathed out His Word to us and that the Scriptures are given by inspiration of God. What exactly that looked like in terms of the human experience and the human writing, and their awareness of what was going on at the time, that we cannot answer um, beyond some generalities that we'll look at in a couple of weeks. Okay, I think that that's it. Yes, Garrett? Well, that's why I said after that that sometimes the term inspiration can be used for the entire process, but the one time that Theonustos is used, it's used of the graphe, the writings. These writings were inspired. The human instrument, the humans were the instruments that did that. But we can't, it is confusing to refer to the human instruments as the ones that are inspired since it's the Scripture itself which is God-breathed. It's not the instruments that were God-breathed, it's the Scripture that has been God-breathed. The word inspiration in Scripture is used of the product, not of the process or of the person. It's used of the product. And the one time it is used. And so that's why I say we need to be careful that we just have that in mind. I know that if you said, well, the, the writings were inspired, I know that that's not heresy coming from you. I know that what we would mean by that when we use that, and I could use that here, and we'd all understand what we're talking about. But just for clarification, we're just kind of trying to be precise that we're talking about the product, not the person. Yeah. All right, let's bow in prayer. Matt, really? Okay. In our way of using that term under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, yes. Because the Spirit of God was moving, men moved by the Holy Spirit. So there is a Spirit of God who is moving that man, and the word that Peter uses there is carried along, like wind carries along a sail. These men were being driven by the Holy Spirit in the process. So they were being moved, but what they were is not inspired. What is written is inspired. They were moved by the Holy Spirit to write inspired writings. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.